Father, thank you that you've not left us in the dark with about who you are, who we are, about how your world works. Um, but Lord, you have uh, revealed yourself to us uh, along with who we really are and how your world really works uh, in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, you would give specificity uh, to my friends, Lord, that you would uh, show them how this is a unique word for them with where they are uniquely in life uh, tonight. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, tonight's sermon is about anger. Uh, you'll see that in title, Holy Anger. Uh, and when I think about anger, uh, I think about one of my very favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone. Uh, I've got some other favorite Christmas movies. Uh, Holiday is a personal favorite. Uh, Four Christmases is way up there for me. Uh, but Home Alone is my favorite. I mean, it, it's really like the first, uh, one of the very first movies I can remember going to as a kid in the theater when it came out. And um, if, if it's a little too old for you or it's been a really long time since you've seen it, uh, you, you get the gist, right? I mean, it's the, the McAllister family. They live in the most magical house you can imagine, this red brick house in Chicago. And um, it, it looks, when you look at the house, you're like, I think 44 people could live in there. And um, and 44 people kind of are in there in the night that the movie begins. The night the movie begins, they're running around like crazy, trying to get prepared, throwing their stuff in bags. Uh, and they're all going, uh, there's one family, uh, the McAllisters, and then there's an aunt and uncle and all their kids. So all of these four adults and looks like 22 kids are all going to get in these 15 passenger vans that are going to go to the airport. Uh, and the night before they get in the vans to go to the airport, uh, things kind of begin to fall off the wagon. Uh, Macaulay Culkin's character, his name's Kevin in the movie, uh, Kevin's being uh, a pest. I mean, he's the object of everyone's scorn. Uh, they blame him for spilling the milk. Uh, the, one of the sisters, uh, you know, rags on him because uh, he's so little and so incompetent that laissez competent, you know what I'm talking about, um, that he can't even pack his own bag. Uh, and finally, Buzz, Budge is the teenage uh, brother. He's like a teenage Satan incarnate. That's what he is, more or less. Buzz is the brother. And uh, him and Buzz get in this big argument. The mom comes in and sends Kevin up to his room. And when Kevin is going up to the room, Macaulay Calkins, he's probably like seven years old, he's screaming over and over again, I'm living alone. I'm living alone. I'm living alone. So all this anger has been hurled at him, and now he's throwing all the anger right back at them. And we all know how the movie ends, but you see the anger in this whole sequence, the first 20 or so minutes of the movie, you see it loud and clear. And perhaps the reason it stands, up to, stands out to me so much uh, is because anger really is so ordinary. Their anger is kind of this run-of-the-mill-like anger, kind of like mine. And like it or not, we're all angry. Anger is universal. There's not a person alive who isn't angry in some way. Now, some of you express anger different than others, it varies, but anger is an inescapable human reality. Maybe your anger comes out as blow-up anger, but maybe it's a little more simmery. It's kind of this complaining, this irritability, this frustration. And here's the tough thing about anger. The onslaught is never-ending of things that you can get mad about. I mean, I can almost guarantee you that you're getting angry before you go to bed tonight. You're going to see an email from your boss. It's going to be sent to you at about 9 p.m. And you're going to be like, what the heck? Can't you just wait 12 more hours to send me that email? You're going to get a telemarketer who's going to call you. You're going to spill a drink on your lap on the way home to church, from church. 
You're going to have an insulting spouse. You're going to have whiny and demanding children. One of these things is going to happen. But to make matters worse, we're living in a culture of anger. I mean, think about just our politicians the last few weeks, right? Uh, One politician ripped up another politician's speech. The other politician wouldn't extend a handshake at a prayer breakfast to another. Then you've got these opinion-based news sources, and they're laced with anger. But that taps into the anger in our souls, and it just makes us angrier. The algorithms get it right, don't they? But the Bible's got a very complex view of anger. On the one hand, the Bible sees anger as a grave sin. If you go to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21, you'll see this. Paul gives this long list of sins, and about half of them belong in the anger family. But on the other hand, you've got the Lord Jesus in the passage that Janie read earlier. He's rightfully angry. I mean, he's Jesus who didn't sin. He's rightfully angry at the profiteering going on outside the temple. But how can you tell the difference? How do you know if you're Galatians 5 kind of angry, if you're John 2 kind of angry? How can we eliminate destructive anger, and how can we cultivate constructive anger? Well, our passage in Nehemiah gives us some help. So let's read it together. We'll read the whole thing. I'm going to give a couple of notes throughout, but just hang in there with me. I'm not going to read this again. I'm not even going to summarize it again, but just hang in here, all right? <clears throat> First five verses, he's got a group of people who are coming and complaining to him, all right? Let's listen to their complaint. Now there was a, a, arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. All right, that's the complaint. We heard it loud and clear, right? They're being taxed, they're going to sell their kids. Uh, they've got to sell their fields. They're getting charged interest. All this is just taking place against these people who are helping Nehemiah build the wall. All right, verse 6. We get, how's Nehemiah going to react? Verse 6. I was very... Say it with me. I was very... When I heard their outcry in these words, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. Verse 9, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, the percentage of money, grain, wine, oil that you have been exacting from them. Let's see how they respond, these people. Verse 12, then they said, we will restore those and require nothing from them. 
We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Interesting, verse 14. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep, and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, that I have done all this for this people. The word of the Lord. All right, we get to Nehemiah 5. That means we've, been, we've done Nehemiah 1 to 4 the last three weeks. And here's what we've seen happen. Uh, Nehemiah is the chief figure in the book. Uh, he receives complaint in the beginning of chapter 1 that the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. The temple's been rebuilt. There's some people living within Jerusalem's city limits. Uh, but they're very vulnerable because there are no walls. You might say, what's the big deal? I mean, Walls? I mean, who would want a wall around where they live? Well, we know one person who really likes walls, uh, uh, but that's not, what, that's not what's happening here. The reason that they want walls is because every ancient Near Eastern city had walls. It, it protected them from, uh, fr- from those who were on the outside. So for them, not having walls was kind of like a, a bank not having cybersecurity. That's what it was like. And so when Nehemiah hears this news, he really is brokenhearted. He, can't, he, he, he knows that this has got to be fixed, that his people can't be in this vulnerable state any longer. They've got to have some protection. So he begins to have this stirring. Maybe, maybe God's calling me. Maybe God's calling me to kind of lead the charge to get the walls rebuilt. But the problem is that Nehemiah is more or less a, a, a head slave. He's a cupbearer. He's a cupbearer to the king of Persia. And he lives, he's living in Susa. He doesn't live in Jerusalem. So he knows the king's going to release him. He goes to the king. The king releases him. And the king says, here's a blank check. Whatever it costs to build those walls, I'd be glad to pay for it. Nehemiah can't believe it. So Nehemiah goes with his military escort from Susa in Persia back to Jerusalem. And he gets there and he sees the situation for himself. He had heard it when he was in Susa. Now he's got to see it. He sees the kind of damage that has been done. He's got an accurate appraisal of, of, of what needs to happen. He goes to the Jews and says, hey, there's, here's what needs to happen. They're on board. He delegates them out. He puts them along the wall, and the wall's beginning to come out. And at that time, these outside forces begin to come in. You've got people from the east and the west, the north and the south. They're coming in on Nehemiah and his people. They're hurling. They're giving them verbal threats. They're giving them physical threats. And Nehemiah perseveres. He gets the people to persevere. That's where we were at last week. And now, this week, we see that the problem, the opposition is not on 
the outside this time. It's not Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ashdodites, the Arabs. That's not who's the problem here. The problem is with people inside. People inside the walls. It's people inside God's people. That's who they've got to watch out for. And what we'll see here in this chapter is we'll really see, we heard of the injustice in verses 1 to 5. In verses 6 to 11, you see Nehemiah's anger. And then you see peace in verses 12 to 19. So injustice, anger, peace. Let's look at the injustice. You've got the picture, right? You've got these people all along the walls. They've got swords kind of, kind of put down. Uh, they've got swords hung around their belts. And then they've got, they've got their trowels that they spread their mortar with. They're picking up rocks and bricks and they're building this wall. But think about it. What were these people doing before they were laying bricks and spreading mortar? They weren't spreading bricks or, or putting it in bricks and spreading mortar. That's not what they did for a living. What did they do? They were farmers. Just about everybody was a farmer in the ancient Near East. And that means in order for them to work on the walls, they had to leave their fields. And so this was a huge financial risk for them. They had to leave their fields unattended. And to make matters worse, not only were they unattended, not only did they pay people to work their fields, they also were undergoing a famine. And so now, because of this whole dynamic, they've had to mortgage their land to the wealthy, their wealthy fellow Jews. And now they can't make the payment. If they can't make the payment, then they're going to hand over the land. They're going to have the potential loss of land. They're not going to be able to pay their interest. And now they're selling their sons and their daughters as slaves. So the bottom line is that rebuilding the wall, on top of everything else that's going on, is ruining these people. And now they're bringing their complaint to him. So what's going to stop the work? What's going to stop the work is the injustice going on to the poor and the working class in Jerusalem. See, if the wealthy were really on board with God's plan, they would have not charged interest. They would have made it really easy for these folks to work on the wall. They would have understood that they had to leave their farm. But instead, these wealthy Jews are getting what's theirs. Their greed is getting the best of them. So you've got opposition coming from within God's people and you see that it's just as much of a danger, if not more of a danger, than the opposition that came from outside of God's people last week. So you see it, Satan's at it again. And he's coming after Nehemiah. He's testing him. He's got, he, Satan's got Nehemiah on the ropes. I mean, think about how Nehemiah could have responded. He could have said, uh, listen, he could have responded this way to the people working on the wall. L- listen, this is what God's called us to do. This is very clear. We've got to press on here. You've got to trust God. He's going to... Get your kids back. You're going to get your fields back. Just keep working. He could have done that. He he could have viewed these complaints not as an injustice, but as something personal against his leadership. Nehemiah probably felt kind of trapped, and he kind of thought, well, if I don't do something about this problem, I'm going to have a coup on my hands. I'm not going to have any any workers. The, 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 The work on the wall is going to stop. It's going to come to a screeching halt. But if I go and I confront these leaders, these rich folk, that if I do this with directness, if I do it with force, I might lose the leaders. I'm not gonna, and I'm going to need them to be in my corner at some point. So it's a test. What's he going to do? Is he going to side with those building the wall? 
Or is he going to get angry at the wealthy in Jerusalem who are collecting interest? What's it going to be? The injustice. And then in verse 6, as we pointed out in the reading, he gets very angry. Very angry. And it's clear the object of his wrath is not those working on the wall. It's those who are taking advantage of those who are working on the wall. Anger. It's hard for most of us to fit anger into any kind of Christian ethic. And I think mostly it's because we view God as this dispassionate, hippie, grandpa kind of figure, right? He's, he, he, he really, his favorite two words are peace and love. But God gets angry too. And if God gets angry, then it's appropriate for us to get angry. But most of us, our anger is not justified. It's way out of proportion. It flares up too quickly. It alienates relationship. It burns too long. It causes pain. It hides. And here's what's really sick about our anger. It feels good. It feels really good to take the stance of a critic. It feels good to take the stance of a judge. It feels good to be an activist. It feels good, it feels good to take the viewpoint of a plaintiff. It feels really good to say, I disapprove, that's wrong, I feel offended, I want you to make this right, and if you don't, I'm going to get rid of you. I hate to say it, but I know this anger far too well. Don't you? But then you've got Jesus' anger. And Jesus' anger is rooted in love. Because there really are times we should get upset. Something really is wrong, and we need to step out in constructive anger with conviction to take, tackle evil head on. You see it right here with Nehemiah. He, he was willing to start this necessary conflict in order to solve a real problem. And if we do anger in this way, here are some things that can happen. Here are some good results. You protect victims. You hold evildoers accountable. And not only do you hold them accountable, you give them the opportunity to repent. But here's the problem. We, we, we don't love enough to react. We just shrug and go about our business. And when we do that, we become complicit with evil. And so really, the absence of needed anger is just the other side of how we get anger wrong. So how are we going to move forward? Well, in one sense, bad anger doesn't just go away. It's been festering for a lifetime. It's going to take a lifetime for you to get over it. But good, constructive, problem-solving anger doesn't just happen. You're not going to be able to just turn a switch in your heart tonight and say, hey, I'd like that bad anger to go away and the good anger to come on. No, it's got to be cultivated. And one of the ways that we cultivate good, healthy anger is we do what Nehemiah did in verse 7. You see what he did in verse 7? Verse 7 says, he takes counsel with himself. Takes counsel with himself. Now, I've got to think, based on everything we know about Nehemiah, when we come to chapter 5, verse 7, that this taking counsel within himself is prayerful reflection. 
And during this time of prayer for reflection, he, he knows what he's got to do. He knows he's got to bring charges against the nobles. He's got to bring charges against the officials. And he does so in verses 8 to 11. He calls them to give back their property. He calls them to give back their interest gain. And the crazy thing is, they do it instantly. All overnight, brotherhood from the rich to the poor replaces cutthroat business ethics. That's amazing. But if you really look at it here, if you look at verses 1 to 11, you see the steps here. Nehemiah listens, 1 to 5. He gets angry in verse 6. He thinks in verse 7. And then he gets constructively angry in verses 8 to 11. So listen, angry, thinks, gets constructively angry. I think that's a really good pattern. And I think what usually happens is we experience injustice, at least injustice to some degree. We get angry, and then we act destructively. We skip this all-important step listed in verse 7 where we slow down to think, where we slow down to pray, where we slow down and we ask God to sift through our motives. I don't know if you caught this in our reading, but something happened in verse 10 that's very noteworthy. In verse 10, Nehemiah includes himself as one of the rich dudes who needed to give his property, to give property back and quit charging interest. In other words, he's one of the bad guys. And I'm going to guess that the way that Nehemiah did this taking interest and mortgaging out land and all of this business interactions, I bet you Nehemiah did it better than anybody else did. I bet you his interest rates were lower. I bet you he was more lenient on payments. And I bet when he first hears verses 1 to 5, he's thinking, okay, one of the people they're complaining about is me. Not because I'm the leader, because I'm doing what they're saying shouldn't be happening. But it's not that bad. I'm not as bad as the rest of those people. But I think in verse 7, when he slowed down to think, that's when he came under conviction. He knew when he slowed down to think that he was going to have to go out in public and he was going to have to confess his sin. And now when he sees this whole issue, he's not just angry at those people. He's also angry at himself. So when you get angry, what does it look like? What situations are you most likely to be angry? When do you tend to notice it? When do you not notice it? When do you need somebody else to point out how angry you are? Are you more likely to fly off the handle with blow-up anger, or are you more likely to kind of sit and simmer? Are you likely to let sin go unchecked? And therefore become complicit. What, what, what would it look like for you to pause? You know, you hear the injustice, you get angry, and you pause. All right, I'm going to let God sit through my motives. I'm going to pray. When do you do that? What would that look like for you?
Here's the glorious thing. If you did pause and you were to need to be repentant, you know it's going to be embarrassing. But it is the honest road to freedom. And it's our only hope for peace. And you see that peace, verses 12 to 19. That peace, you see it in the community. And then you see it within Nehemiah. See verse 12 and 13? I mean, instantly this peace just boils up as the rich give back the property. And the people who are wall workers, they can go back to work without all this anxiety. And in verse 13, they have this worship service. It's pretty crazy. And when we think about the term peace, we usually think of the absence of conflict. But peace in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, is, is used, there's this word shalom, right? You've heard of the word. And shalom doesn't, again, doesn't mean what we mean by peace, the absence of conflict. It means much more than that. It means flourishing. It means wholeness. And now the community is whole again. Do you see it? Both parties brought together in worship. That's wholeness. That's flourishing. But you also see it in Nehemiah. See, in verses 14 to 19, from verses 13 to 14, there's this break. We don't know how many years, but there's a few years between verses 13 and 14. It's a fast-forwarding from to, to Nehemiah not being general contractor of getting this wall built. Now that the, the wall eventually gets built, we'll hear about it next week. It gets completed. And Nehemiah takes this post a few years later as governor. And when he takes the post as governor, it entitles him by law to collect taxes. Specifically, a tax around his ability to entertain others. We saw in verses 14 and 19 that he's got 150 people he's got to feed and give drink to. And the people who are supposed to pay for that are the people of the community. But Nehemiah refuses a tax. See, he learned something in verses 1 to 13, not to collect everything that he's entitled to. It's proof that when, that his leadership is really a labor of love, he doesn't want to be like all their previous governors. In verse 15, it says those previous governors lorded over the people. Verse 18 says that, that he doesn't want to lay heavy burdens on them. So how does Nehemiah become this kind of person? Well, it's verse 10. His repentance is what led to his change. He, he got properly angry at his own sin. It wasn't self-loathing. It wasn't berating himself for his shortcomings. He didn't shame and punish himself to become this self-defeating kind of person. But isn't that what we mistake repentance for? Now, there is a, a sorrow for our past sin. That's what happens in repentance. But there's hope. There's hope that you can actually change. See, what happens is that Nehemiah finds mercy. Now he can be a merciful leader. And when we know, like Nehemiah, that we've been forgiven much, then we can love much. Remember that story, Luke 7, with Jesus? Jesus is eating a meal at a religious ruler's house. Jesus is reclined at a table. The religious leader is sitting right there across from him. And while they're sitting there, this woman with a really bad reputation, a sinful woman, comes in. And she just barges right in on their meal, and she anoints Jesus' feet with oil. Well, the religious leader sitting across from Jesus, he, he's furious. He can't believe that Jesus, this very respectable person, is going to allow this other person, a, a woman, a sinful woman, to be in his presence. 
And Jesus responds to his anger and tells him a story. He tells him a story about two, uh, a money lender. A money lender has two debts out, two different people. One debt's for 50 bucks, one's for 500. And he just asks a simple question. Which person is going to love the money lender more if both debts are forgiven? Well, the religious leader responds correctly. The one who's got the bigger debt. And Jesus gives commentary, and he said, He who has forgiven little loves little. See, Nehemiah knew he'd been forgiven much. He knew he was one of the bad guys. And because he repented, now he's empowered to be generous by not exacting this tax. And brothers and sisters, this is the way of handling anger that produces good. How do you move from blow-up anger to constructive anger? You see that God's wrath, his rightful wrath for your sin was absorbed by another. See, see, God's anger at your sin, at my sin, was poured out on his only son, Jesus, on the cross. Why would he do that? It's because he loved you. That's why. It's at the cross that anger and love kiss. And when you see Jesus in this way, it allows you to lay aside your warlike traits. You no longer have to be defensive, aggressive, critical, self-justifying. And you all of a sudden can be peaceful. You know that you don't have to punish this other person. It's not your job. Because that person's sins have already been punished on the cross. You can be constructively angry and show the accused that there's hope for them. You can confess your sin instead of other sin. Instead of proclaiming your rightness, you confess your many sins, your failings, your weaknesses, and ask for grace. That's constructive anger. See, here's a problem with angry people. They're always talking to the wrong person. Always. Angry people talk to themselves. They're rehearsing the failings of others. Angry people talk to the people they're mad at. They ream them out for their real and imaginary failings. Then they talk to other people, just slander and gossip. But chaotic, sinful, headstrong anger, it starts to dissolve. When you begin to talk to the right person, when you begin to talk to your good shepherd, who sees you, hears you, and is mercifully involved in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, uh, your love for us. Uh, Lord, it's at the cross where your love and your wrath meet. And so, Lord, I pray knowing that uh, you are the judge, uh, we can get off the seat. We can get off the judgment seat. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us be constructively angry, that we wouldn't just walk away and not act when called upon. Oh Lord, we need your help. In Christ's name, amen.